Luke 23, verse 26. Luke 23, 26. I'm relying on you to know some of the story. We're just gonna look at a little bit of it tonight. Seek to understand something more of what maybe the Lord has to say to you, has to say to me. This um, study for tonight really spoke to me. That may sound weird, but it, the Lord does that. Uh, you, you know, And he does that with all of us. When our Bibles are open and we're reading and we're thinking it through and we're praying, <clears throat> he teaches us. And he has things specifically for each one of us. And I hope this is for you tonight. But again, even if it's not, it was for me, so I'm good to go. Luke 23, verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Just one quick thing. I'm so struck by how many people were affected by this. Obviously, over 2,000 years. How many people have been impacted, affected, touched, changed by this event, by this event? literally world-changing event. And yet, at the moment it was taking place, if you just read through the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, they call them Matthew, Mark, and Luke, add in the Gospel of John, and you read the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, just think about how many people get involved with this situation. People like Simon of Cyrene, who had no idea, had no clue that he was gonna be part of this story. I believe he's named here by Luke, because he later was in the church. And we have some evidence of that, that he has a couple of sons that are named in some of Paul's letter. One of them named Rufus, which I just think is a great name. Anyway, Simon is coming in from the country. He's there for Pesach, Passover. And they grab him and they place on him the cross to carry behind Jesus, verse 27. And following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him, Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. That was not a condemning statement. That was a statement of truth and reality. You have no idea what's coming. You see here the heart of Jesus. His compassion is in concern for the daughters of Jerusalem rather than for himself as he's carrying his cross. For behold, he says, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And Father Perhaps for the first time um, in reading through this, I found myself relating to the criminals and realized that in this story, that that's a position that any one of us could easily have, should have. And I pray that perhaps we might have the opportunity tonight to see this through criminal eyes. Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't know the day or the hour of our death. Rarely. Someone might have a doctor say you have so much time. And by the way, if the doctor's ever told you or has recently told you you have so much time, don't listen to them. They don't have a clue. 
You know, they're guessing. They're giving you the best that they've got. The Lord numbers our days. The Lord knows how much time we have, but we don't know the moment. And we talk a lot about we don't know the day or the hour that is applied to the catching up, the rapture of the church, but we don't know the day or the hour of our departure, of our death, should it happen before the church is caught up. But Jesus knew. He would have known down to the very moment of his final breath, known this was coming. He knew this was the plan. He knew it all along, knew it at the beginning of his ministry. John chapter two, verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? This is after he's cleared out the temple before his ministry started. He would do it again after his ministry was concluded in three years. But Jesus said to them at this point, early on, he said, hey, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He knew the day of his death. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, Jesus knew. We know that six months out from that final Passover that he began to speak openly to the disciples about his approaching death, which is remarkable to me that he didn't speak about it openly for the first two and a half years of the ministry. With these close friends and associates as they traveled together and walked together and he taught, but he kept that to himself. And now six months out, we're told in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. As plain as I just read it to you, he began to describe it to them. Matthew 17, 22, six days after he began this process, while they were gathered together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So there was no question as to what he was talking about. This was not a parable. This was not some kind of allusion to something else. This was, they're gonna kill me, guys. He's preparing them for it. Luke 13, he said, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. How more clear can it possibly be? And Jesus says, this is what is about to happen. And then they went up to Jerusalem. At the beginning of the Paschal week, as the people were shouting, Hosanna, Jesus knew. I love that you pointed that out, Jake, just this last Sunday. He said, do you realize, while the people are shouting, Hosanna to the, to, in the highest, while they're, they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus knew. He was a week out from his death, and many of these same people would be calling, crucify him, crucify him. He knew. All through that week, as the, the Passover lambs were methodically and meticulously inspected because they needed to be spotless. Prove them spotless before you bring them up for sacrifice. And it could be a lamb or a goat, but they were inspected throughout the week and so was Jesus. Poked and prodded and critiqued and challenged all week long and yet 
proven spotless. They just couldn't get him on anything. His answers were perfect. His response is undeniable. And every morning of that week, Jesus Christ woke up to the reality that every moment of every day was bringing him closer to his death. How do you live like that? Again, it's one thing for a doctor to say, you have six months, you have a year, you have two years. They really don't know. My grandmother was told that she had six months to live. She had a tumor in her spinal cord that incapacitated her. In fact, it rendered her paraplegic. And so she went home to die. And I was one or two years old at the time. This remarkable lady lived bedridden for 16 more years and was part of my upbringing and my raising and my faith. The doctors don't know, but Jesus knew. And he knew moment by moment by moment, this is it, this is it. How do you do that? Lord, how did you endure the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, and do it tonight, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. That is all the way to Calvary so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we deal with hatred and spite and evil in this world? We look at Jesus who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That's how you do it. That's how you live, knowing your death is imminent. That's how you live, knowing that your body is not gonna last. Do you have that joy? Do you recognize, I've been asking this again recently. I'm gonna ask it again on Sunday morning. I mean, hey, Resurrection Sunday, you gotta be joyful. So we're gonna talk about that mega gladness on Sunday, but, but what is the joy? What is the joy that was set before Jesus. Some of you Bible students, we've talked about this. You may know where I'm going with this. But I think it's twofold. I've always thought that the joy set before Jesus was you and me. That he looked right through the cross and he saw your face. And he saw mine. And he saw what the Bible would call his brethren. And he saw those who would be saved by his blood. The joy set before him that you and, and I are his joy. And that's a wonderful thought and I think absolutely true. But there's something else. Something else. It was the joy of going to the Father. See, Jesus loves the Father. Always loved the Father, got away by himself early in the morning, late at night, through the night to pray because he just wanted to be near the Father. An example for us, that we have a Father who deeply loves us and a Father who we can deeply love. Jesus loved the Father. He said in John 14, 28, you heard that I said I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. That's good for me, <laughs> That is good news. Five times, by the way, in his last, in the Thursday night discourse of John 14, 15, and 16, five times Jesus says, because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. Because Jesus loved the Father. The joy set before him. He would endure the cross. He would handle the pain emotionally, physically, 
And far more than that, spiritually, he would take the full weight of the wrath of God because he loved the Father. And it was joy for him. And again, the joy set before him is you. Isaiah 53, verse 10, if he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, talking about Jesus, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. That's the joy. It's you, and it's the Father. It's Jesus' homecoming, and it's the forward-looking joy of fellowship that I believe he longs for to this day. But when Jesus awoke on a Rev Pesach, that is Passover Eve, when he awoke, he knew that night he was going to host his final Passover. Now, remember how Jews look at the day. They start in the evening. They don't start in the morning with sun up like we do. Jewish people start in the evening. The evening marks the next day. The evening is the beginning of the new day. I love how that, how that works in Judaism because it starts in darkness, it ends in dawn. It ends in light. And, and keep that in mind as you think through this, that the morning, what we would call Erev Pesach, that is Passover Eve, that morning in, at the dawning when Jesus would awaken, that evening would actually mark the beginning of Passover, which would then run the next 24 hours. But he knew when he woke that morning, tonight, tonight is my last one. My last one, at least for now. Look back at, at Luke chapter 22, verse 15. Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So again, even that evening before the betrayal, he is reminding them, I'm about to suffer but we had to do this first. I wanted to share this with you first. For I say to you, verse 16, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And boy, what a feast that's gonna be. I'll tell you what, at the marriage feast of the lamb, we ain't gonna be drinking out of tiny little cups and breaking off tiny little pieces of cracker. <laughs> and it's not gonna be grape juice. It's gonna be the good stuff. And I can't wait. And Jesus said, I'm looking forward to that, but I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna share in that. I'm not gonna have that kind of feast again until I come in my kingdom. And he shared that with them. And then they shared that last Passover. And some of it was very good and very sweet and very warm. And some of it was very painful as Jesus tried one last time to change the mind of Judas. And then Judas departs. And then Jesus and the apostles, they sang a hymn. I think maybe, perhaps, possibly, Psalm 118. Read that on your own time. But they sang a hymn together, and that must have been precious. Can you even imagine getting a recording of that hymn that night? Now, some of you might say, bunch of guys in a room could have sounded terrible. <laughs> Listen, last night, the shepherds, we, we walked the property. Uh, we normally have our shepherds meetings on Thursday night. We walked the property. We started in the middle. We went to this corner. We went all the way back out to that corner. We trudged He-Man style all the way through the woods and the muck and the salal and the trees and all that stuff over to the far corner over there. All the while, we were praying and we were talking about our fellowship and, and just seeking the Lord's guidance and, and praying for his hand to be on everything that's happening here. 
And as we got over to the far corner, uh, we were sitting there praying a little bit, talking a little bit more. And Doug said, I have a song. I went, right on. Sing it, Doug. We exalt thee. And we sang that song. Bunch of guys in the woods singing a song of praise. I gotta tell you, it was beautiful. We gotta record that, guys. So they sang a hymn and then, and then had a last walk across the Cadron Valley and up the Mount of Olives there to the garden, the beautiful Garden of Gethsemane, a place where, where Jesus had gone to rest and stay and sometimes sleep out of the, under the stars many, many times, a sweet rest, but this time the Garden of Gethsemane got Shimon, the olive press would be a pressing. Literally, he was pressed painfully to the bleeding of his brow, an agonizing prayer. And then finally there in the garden, he was arrested. If you've ever wondered how Jesus could share the, the Passover meal and be the Passover lamb on the same day, it's because of what I just told you, God timed it out that way. Passover began that evening and they shared the Passover meal. Passover ran through the next morning and the next day to the next eve. And Jesus had the Passover meal on Passover and became the Passover lamb on Passover. And it's beautiful timing. In fact, the Lord planned it. I can show you where, Exodus chapter, three verse, or chapter 12, verse three. On the 10th of this month, that's the month of Nisan, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And in verse six of Exodus 12, the Lord says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. At twilight is bain ha'arbayim. And it literally translates, they are to kill it in the interval between the sunsets. So by Torah law, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb could happen anytime from one eve to the next, as long as it was in between the two sunsets. Why would God speak it that way? So that Jesus could share the Passover meal and be the Passover lamb on the same Passover. And he did. At twilight, by Torah law, everything perfect. Jesus never missed a thing. So the Jews, it's one full day, and that's how Jesus did both. God had been planning for this for a long, long time, even further back than Sinai. And you Bible students know this. You've heard this. Perhaps you remember the proto-evangelicum, which is just a fun word to say. But Genesis 3.15, God said, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. That's the proto-evangelicum, it means first gospel. Her seed? A woman doesn't have seed, a woman has an egg. This is speaking of something miraculous that was going to happen. A woman would encompass a man, Jeremiah prophesied. A woman would have a seed. A virgin would be with child. He says, I'm gonna put enmity between you, you and the woman, your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head. Serpent, Satan, God is saying, you gonna die by the bruising on your head, he's gonna kill you dead. But you shall bruise him on the heel, which is so remarkable because a nail through the feet would cause horrible bruising on the heels. 
So as far back as the garden, God was declaring something's coming. He's given us 6,000 years, but something's coming that would take place, that would bring about salvation. In Revelation 13, verse eight, even refers to the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's how sure a thing this was in the mind of God, in the counsel of God, and Jesus knew. From the beginning, with God, because in the beginning, he was with God. In the, in the beginning, he was God. He was with God in the beginning, John tells us. So all the way back, this was the plan before the wor world was even created. But you know what? Jesus was not the only one who knew the day and the hour of his death. I know I told you that none of us know, and we don't, but there were two others at that time who knew. The criminals. They knew that day when they woke, that morning, the morning of Passover, that they were going to die. They were under the death sentence. So they spent the night before, even as Jesus did. Now, Jesus spent the night before very differently, having had Passover, having been arrested, and then being brutalized through six unjust trials before finally being led out to the cross. But the two criminals, they're on death row in Jerusalem, were being held for their crucifixion the next morning. They knew. They lay down that night knowing this is it. You think Rome offered them a final meal? as they lay there thinking about their lives and what they had done and where it had led them and the choices that they had made, the thieves knew they were gonna die. Verse 33 of Luke 23, when they came to the place called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. So you had a Republican and a Democrat. Coverage. <laughs> the recent history was well known. Matthew and Mark both had also recorded this even prior to Luke writing his gospel. Matthew 27, verse 38, he wrote, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Mark wrote in Mark 15, 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 Verse 12, another prophecy said, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the treasure with the strong because he poured himself out to death and he was numbered with the transgressors, counted among criminals, right in the middle. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Be specific with that because I believe it is specific. When Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, it says he interceded for the transgressors. Yes, he interceded for all sinners, but he also interceded for these two criminals. Bible tells us seven different specific things that Jesus spoke on the cross. Were there perhaps things he was muttering, whispering, saying that are not recorded in the scriptures? If there's something else, it would be prayer for the two robbers. And I wonder if they heard it. As they hung crucified next to him and he began to pray for the transgressors. Jesus wasn't the only one who knew he was gonna die. The two criminals there, they knew as well. 
This culture really tries hard to ignore that. You know, think about it. American culture, and it didn't always used to be this way. In fact, I think we've talked about before how early on in even this country's heritage and, and history, death was something very recognized and very dealt with, dealt with right in the home, not, not shuffled off to be handled somewhere other than at home. The person who died was laid out there in the living room, in the dining room, and washed and dressed by the spouse or the parents, and, and then would stay there lying in state during what would be a long wake, a period of recognition of, of the dead and then the funeral out and the burial and it all encompassed, part. it was part of life. Boy, America 2023, death is not a part of our life. Don't talk to me about death. I mean, unless it's someone blowing up on the silver screen, that's okay. But don't talk to me about dying. I don't wanna think about dying. I don't wanna hear about dying. Psalm 39, verse four, David said, Lord, Make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breadths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Some of that breath is worse than others. <laughs> Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses said, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The Bible says it is wisdom to know your mortality. It is wisdom to recognize you don't just live on forever in this mortal state, in this body as we are in this condition. We have a limited amount of time. Every one of us, whether you live nine years or 90, we are a hand breath. We're a mere breath. And it is wisdom to know this. Now, did David and Moses have a death wish? Not at all but they knew the wisdom in awareness of the brevity of life, and they were aware of it, and they also believed in something else. They believed in resurrection. They believed in resurrection. Philippians chapter three. Let me just read this to you for a moment. Philippians chapter three. If you wanna turn over there, you can. It's, it's a beautiful statement of, of Paul's. Philippians chapter three, verse eight. I'll start in verse seven. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And if you know Paul's history, you know all the way up to him becoming a follower of Jesus on a pretty radical conversion day. All the way up to that, he was building a legacy. He was a big name among the Jews. And he says, rubbish. All those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I think Paul knew the joy set before him. He had some of that gladness. He said, the value of knowing Christ of whom I have suffered, the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. This is Paul's trajectory. I wanna go like Jesus. In fact, I I've told you before, when Paul went back to Jerusalem after his missionary journeys, his intention was to go die in Jerusalem, to be crucified there like Jesus. It didn't end up that way. He would be beheaded in Rome instead. 
but he wanted to follow in the footsteps of Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings, conform to his death, in order, Paul says, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That word attained is teteleomai, which is from tetelestai, which means to be perfected, that I may be perfected in the resurrection. Well, that's Sunday. We can't talk about that right now, but Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. Listen, until then, be careful how you walk. Be wise. Paul says, not as unwise men, but as wise. Be careful how you walk, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So back to the criminal thieves. In Luke 23, can you relate to them? Because as I said before, when I look at the players in this story from uh, Peter and the apostles to the women at the cross, when I look at Simon of Cyrene, when I look at the centurion at the cross, when I look at all those involved from Herod to Pilate, the player I think I most relate to would be one of the two thieves. They were on crosses, which they deserved. And you and I should be on crosses which we deserve. I relate to the thieves. Matthew and Mark use the word for them robbers, which is less day. Less day, not less, not pastor less. This is less day. Don't call him a robber or a thief. He's not pastor less day. Although after this, I don't know, less, it could stick. Less day, which means those who plunder. So it makes sense to translate that, robbers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse nine says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't, don't you understand that, Paul says? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's sexual immorality outside of marriage of any kind, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, oh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you fit that list anywhere, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do even to try to clean up your act. You're headed for a cross because that's what you deserve. Well, I don't think I'm on that list, Pastor Rick. Ever listed, lifted something that wasn't yours? Ever? I was convicted when I was like seven years old and took a roll of Smarties out of a grocery store and ran next door into the clothing store and ate them up before anyone could stop me. <laughs> a thief at seven. <laughs> Those who plunder, you ever covet? You ever revile? Oh, that guy's such a jerk. What a moron. You ever revile? You ever cheat? If you did once, then your position is on a cross. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Luke uses a different word. Matthew and Mark, they say, less day, robbers. Uh, Luke uses criminal, which is kakorgus. That's a kind of a weird sounding word, kakorgus. You're a kakorgus. It means an evildoer or a worker of bad deeds. Ever done a bad deed in your life once? If you've done it once, then you miss the mark. If you've done it once, you cannot stand before a perfectly righteous God. Yours is the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul continues and says, 
Such were some of you, which is one of the greatest lines in the Bible. He gives us list of which we all are a part. And then he says, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul said in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, if that's you sitting here tonight going, I am ashamed of my sin, my sin keeps dogging me, I'm aware of my sin, listen to me, you're in a room with everybody who has the same condition. We have all sinned, that's all of us. You're not the only person in history whose sin was just a little worse than everybody else's. Wrong. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Again, Sunday morning. But this is Friday night. Bottom line is no pretty good dude is gonna secure his salvation. Can't do it. No decent dudette can save herself. And the surety of death does one of two things. Note this tonight. It does one of two things. Just as we see two robbers on the right and on the left, the awareness of you are impending death, the wisdom, if you will, of the surety that you will die, it will do one of two things to you. It will either poison you or it will prepare you. Poison or prepare. And note this, at first, on the cross, both right and left, both Republican and Democrat, both criminals were spewing hate at Jesus. Matthew 27, 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. That is what the, what the chief priests were saying. What the scribes were saying, what the ne'er-do-wells, what the Pharisees were spewing at him. Both of the criminals were saying the same thing from their cross. Yeah, yeah, come down from there. You say, if you're the son of God, come on, you can do it. Ha ha. Making fun of him in their own pain. Mark chapter 15, verse 32, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. This is remarkable. It's the recognition of your death. I'm gonna die anyway, so what does it matter? Spewing hate. And we don't know how long the verbal abuse went back and forth. We don't know how long the harassment went on. If you, if you read through the story, we can assume it was on and off for about three hours. What was Jesus doing the whole time? Well, we know that one of the many things Jesus spoke from the cross, specifically the Bible tells us, he spoke over and over and over and over. Verse 34 Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Every spewed hatred from a criminal, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Every angry word from a Pharisee, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know how I know Jesus said that over and over? Because it's written in the Greek in the imperfect active indicative. That is, it's just ongoing. Father, forgive them. It was not a one-time, one-shot deal. Hope you heard it. If you didn't, you're condemned. It's over and over and over and over. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How many times have you sinned in your life? You didn't even know what you were doing. And then you found out later. Oh, <laughs> guess that was bad. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing again and again and again. They insulted, he forgave. They scorned, he saved. They abused, 
he absolved. And Peter takes that. Peter, who denied him himself those three times, later would write, 1 Peter 2, 21, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And Peter says, that's how a follower of Jesus lives. You take the hits. And when they insult you, you forgive them. And when they revile you, you seek for their good. It's a completely different way of living. Well, verse 34 continues. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, a fulfillment of prophecy. I'll show you on Sunday morning. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him and saying, he saved himself. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. We're told the soldiers also mocked him and were coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. Or we're told elsewhere, I believe in John, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 39 says, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. One of the criminals. In this period of three hours, something happened. Something changed. And we know this for a matter of fact because Matthew and Mark told us both criminals were insulting him. Both criminals were jeering and sneering at Jesus from their own respective crosses. But all of a sudden, in the midst of this din of sorrow and scorn, one of the criminal thieves had a change of heart. And it is one of the most marvelous stories in all the Bible. It's one you can't get around. It's one you just can't miss. It's one the Lord wants you, wants me to know happened. And watch this. Verse 40. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I can't imagine that came off as a whisper. He's over here. Jesus is in the middle. The other criminal over here, I'm not sure which side it was, so let's not get into a political argument about it. <laughs> he shouts across. So loud enough that the other criminal could hear, and I think in the pain and in the agony, it was loud enough that everybody standing around could hear, this guy owned his sin. It's a remarkable moment. He's about to die, and rather than try to hide from his sin or ignore or brush his sin under the carpet, he, he owns it. He says, oh, I, I'm suffering for what I did. This is just, this is right, this is fair. I deserve to die as a criminal. And at the same time, from his cross, he recognizes Jesus' absolute innocence. This man has done nothing wrong. That's the key. 
what the thief speaks, what the robber says, what this criminal declares is the key to our salvation. He recognizes his need and he sees that there is only one person present who can fulfill that need. He knows he's a sinner and he repents on the cross and he turns, as it were, to Jesus. And he was saying, Jesus, remember when you come in your kingdom, was saying, it's also in the uh, active he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come in. And, and almost as if, you know, on a wing and a prayer, uh, uh, hoping against hope, speaking this, and I think perhaps at this point it's dropping down under his breath, and Jesus says, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And his worst day just became his best. His best day. Do you realize that no matter how bad your life has been, your best day is when you choose Jesus? Or for hopefully most of you, when you chose Jesus. Oh, I chose Jesus when I was 10 years old. I've had a lot of bad days since then. Yeah, well, that was your best day because that's the one that matters. That's the day that counts. And on this particular Good Friday, it was so good. What started out bad, this criminal woke up. I'm gonna die today. This is it. I'm out of here. I deserve this. And by the end of the day, it's good. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the guilt of a life seemingly ending in failure is completely erased. This man would die clean. This man would die forgiven and saved. Psalm 32, verse five, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. This is so important. We'll talk about this more also on Sunday, but this world does not like to talk about sin or use the word sin. Oh, that's too brutal, it's too religious, don't say sin. Say mistake. My friends, a mistake is not a sin, and a sin is no mistake. Sin. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. Human nature says hide your sin, but standing before Jesus, the reality is no, I will confess my sin. I said, David writes, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isaiah 55 verse seven, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. Why? And he will have compassion on him. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know what the Bible doesn't say? And again, imagine for a moment, this thief, he's hanging there. He's next to Jesus. He's bleeding out. He's perhaps in and out of consciousness, but in this moment, he is fully conscious when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what the thief didn't know? He didn't know the doctrine of justification by faith. He was not studied in the theology of substitutionary atonement. If they handed him a doctrinal quiz, he probably would have failed. And it's unlikely he knew anything of the plan of redemption. He wasn't baptized. I mean, come on. He had no certificate of membership in a local church. I mean, there was nothing. He's just hanging on a cross. 
I don't know if any of you have heard this recently. It's been making the ways in social media, but Alistair Begg imagines a conversation with an angel, and he kind of puts this in in the heavenly, uh, but he imagines a conversation as as this thief shows up there at the gate, and an angel um, says, "Um, on what basis are you here? On what basis are you, why are you standing here ready to enter eternity? And the thief shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. How do I get there? The man on the middle cross said you could come. I'm a thief, I'm a robber, I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. And from that position, I look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I deserve this death. Would you remember me when you come in your kingdom? And he says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Better still, on that same day, between the Paschal sunsets, the thief was with Jesus in paradise. Now, I, there's a whole theology there I'm not gonna get into tonight. We could talk about what's meant by paradise because we know the Bible says that Jesus, he who ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into Hades. And there's a paradise there. I'm already getting into it. I, just, I love this stuff. <laughs> so there's a paradise there when Jesus descends and guess where the thief went? He went with Jesus. He was with Jesus in paradise. Isn't that the living hope of resurrection? We spent six Wednesday nights talking about the rapture slash resurrection of the church, and the whole point is it's personal that we shall always be with the Lord. Today you will be with me, Jesus says. He doesn't say, today I'll ship you off to heaven. Good luck convincing the angels to let you in. (laughs) Today you'll be with me. Translation, I love this because this is something Michael Adelot used to say all the time. I got you. Translation, that's what Jesus says. I got you. Today you'll be with me. I got you. And Luke's account of the thief on the cross, in my estimation, remains the single greatest story of receiving grace by faith alone, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Now, if the Lord had kept that story out of the Bible, then maybe we could sit here and get all religious. Maybe we could say, well, at the Bridge Christian Fellowship, we've come up with a list of five things that you need to do or accomplish and a little quiz you need to pass before we're gonna call you a Christian. As far as Jesus is concerned, what we see in this story that is as biblical as they come, the man on the middle cross said you could come. How do I get saved? You look to the man on the middle cross You repent of your sin. I know I deserve death. But would you remember me in life forever? All this guy did was believe Jesus for a good, good Friday. Verse 44. And it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Other places tell us from top to bottom as if God himself grabbed hold of the top and just ripped it open. No more would there be a veil between people and the Lord. Now you go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ himself. 
And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's quoting scripture. That's Psalm 31, verse five. And having said this, he breathed his last. The centurion saw what had happened, and he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. In another place, he says, certainly this man was the son of God. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. The thieves witnessed the grace of Jesus. And I wonder if, I wonder if when Jesus took his last breath, because the thieves, both of them, lived longer. When Jesus took his last breath, into your hands I commit my spirit, and John 19, 30 tells us his final words, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, and both thieves were still alive. So the thief who was poisoned by his mortality saw Jesus die. Good riddance. The thief who was changed by this whole experience. The thief who suddenly found himself prepared for eternity, he watches Jesus die. There's one more thing you gotta understand. Put yourself in the place of that thief. The thief who declared faith, the thief who Jesus promised to bring into paradise, that he would be with him. Jesus just died. And I'm still on this cross. Is it possible? Can you imagine that human doubt crept in a little bit? Oh no. Oh no. Did I hear him right? Did he really say today? I'm sure that the enemy was whispering, Did God really say today? Is this promise for me? Is it really for me? Absolutely. You know why? Not because the thief had some great rush of faith that then stayed. He wasn't sitting there singing on the cross all the way till he died. He may have had doubts. He may have had fears. He may have had last moment, oh, Jesus, Jesus, be true to your word. Jesus, do what you said you'd do. Oh, Jesus. Something else happened to the thief on the way to his death. Something before paradise, and I know he was in paradise, and we're gonna be able to talk to him about this someday. We'll be able to meet up with the thief eventually. I mean, it's gonna be several quadrillion years into eternity because I'm not gonna be interested in anybody but Jesus for a long, long, long time. But eventually, we'll run into him. What was that like for you? Oh, man, it's my best day. It was my best day. John, or Luke says no more of this criminal, but John does. John gives us just a little more information and I want to share this with you and we'll finish tonight. John chapter 19, verse 31 says the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on Shabbat, for that Shabbat was a high day. This was gonna be a special Shabbat because it fell right in the Paschal week. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. That's what they did. See, crucifixion was supposed to be a three to four day process of death, not a three to six hour process of death. The fact that Jesus died after six hours on the cross tells us something. He was in complete control. 
He was in charge of his death. He gave up his spirit when all things had been accomplished, when it had been finished. He said, now I die. He didn't have to wait the three days suffering as typically happened for the crucified. But this was gonna be a Shabbat tomorrow. We can't have criminals hanging up on crosses for our most high and holy Sabbath. They gotta take these bodies down. So they asked for Pilate to do this and, and the process was, if you wanted to die, someone to die quickly on a cross, break their legs. Because on the cross, when your feet are nailed in and your hands are nailed in, the idea is you're nailed so that your knees are bent. And when you just get to where you cannot breathe and you begin to asphyxiate, you pushed up on your feet, which was supposed to be excruciating pain, rushing up through your legs, but you had to push up long enough that you could breathe because naturally the body wants to stay alive and you would push up and breathe as long as you could bear the pain and then sink back down until you couldn't breathe anymore and you would asphyxiate and then you'd push up and it was an up and down process for two to three to four days. It was brutal. So they came to him and they broke their legs. Once their legs were broken, there's no more pushing up. And once the legs were broken, quick asphyxiation and quick death. They say death would come within moments of having the legs broken. So before that eve was concluded of that Passover, before the sun was down, the legs were broken and the thief awoke to the welcome of Jesus. But recognize this final thing between the promise of salvation and paradise, there is still brokenness. Between accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, fellow Christians, and the day when we're called home, there's probably gonna be brokenness. There's probably gonna be pain. There's gonna be sorrow before resurrection. And you may be among those, not me, but you may be among those who die a physical death before the rapture. It'll be okay. It's all right. There's gonna be pain. It's all right. There's gonna be heartache. It's okay. You have the promise. And you know, brokenness or not, that you will open your eyes to Jesus one day very soon. Heavenly paradise has been promised. All you gotta do is repent and believe. Repent, sounds religious. Turn to Jesus then, same thing. Turn to Jesus and believe. And Revelation chapter two, verse seven says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, your word is so precious to us. And I thank you on this good Friday for the opportunity to see through the eyes of the criminal who came to faith to see, Lord, through the heart of the thief who found salvation and forgiveness and the promise, the same promise, Lord Jesus, that you have made to all of us who turn to you and believe. We do that tonight. We turn to you and believe and trust that you are the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 